hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Selection Show. I'm Ian Heath, the news editor of Citywide Selector, and with me in the studio today, I have Mike Coop, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Morningstar Europe for Europe, Middle East and Africa. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. My pleasure, Ian. Lovely to be here. As mentioned today, we're going to be discussing artificial intelligence and whether investors should be getting as excited as they are about this trend. Mike, why is there so much excitement around AI and is it justified? Yeah, it's a very sexy topic, Ian. Uh, looking back, there's a number of things that have been building over time toward this point of excitement. So if you cast your mind back to November last year, that's when uh, the GPT was released to yep. the general public. Uh, and it just highlighted how, like, how this technology has accelerated in what it can do mm. compared to where it was just a few years ago. So that alone uh, just reminded us all um, of of the speed of change. Then, of course, we've had the, the big tech companies announce ongoing big investments, whether it's Meta mm -hmm. or Alphabet. And then, of course, in, in May, we got the earnings result from uh, chipmaker NVIDIA, who provides specialist yep. chips for supercomputers that are being used for a lot of the neural nets, the, the deep learning. And that uh, sales result was off the charts. So those things have really uh, contributed to the, the high profile, the enthusiasm. But let's not forget that actually this has been going on for many years. There's been a lot of fundraising that's been going on in uh, private capital markets, related to technology that's yeah. gone into to AI. And the term AI itself actually was coined back, back way back in 1955 by it? a maths professor um, at, at Dartmouth called McCarthy. And ever since then, because of that very evocative term, it's given rise to bouts of enthusiasm and, and thinking hard about what could be possible. Um, so it's been with us a long time and you get these periodic... Um, uh, waves of enthusiasm and projections. Back then, it was projected that computers could beat humans in chess within 10 years, but it took 40 years. Okay. Um, so you've had a number of these, these waves. So this is, in some ways, not out of keeping with that. But what is different is the degree to which the capabilities have accelerated in the last two to three years. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, it's a very well-explored topic, AI, isn't it? I think it's kind of captured the imagination of people for a long, long time now. And um, you, you just mentioned, you know, there's been an acceleration in the last two, three years. I mean, how's that manifested itself exactly? Well, it's really come about, um, as many of these things do, uh, in an unplanned way. So the prior way in which... Um, computers were effectively taught how to do things, which is, and that's what we're talking about here. It's AI is really about computers, machine learning, where they are able to uh, try new and different things and learn for themselves and don't require uh, a very categor categoric and specific set of instructions. So it used to be that you would code computers to do a very specific task. And the challenge, and the reason for that is that we, as humans, we know a lot more than we can actually explain. So let me give you an example. So if I say to you, how do you recognize my face? And you go, oh, well, uh, yes, you've got a certain arrangement of, 
or, you know, the, the way your face looks, where your eyes are, the colour of them and so on. But actually, it's really hard to explain things like facial recognition. So it used to be a constraint to learning that you could only communicate and, and teach them that which you were able to express clearly and then code. Mm-hmm. So what's happened is there's been a transition from that to learning by example. So providing a series of examples with large data sets yeah. and some rules mm-hmm. around things and guiding and providing some feedback. And that has allowed a broader way of learning that doesn't require you to specify everything. That combined with progress in uh, computing power mm-hmm. and then uh, large data sets um, have enabled some, some real breakthroughs. Um, and so that, te- that way of doing things meant that you suddenly were able to get more out of bigger data sets than you could before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also broadened what could be done uh, with this iterative machine learning. So it's generative. It's creating things that weren't there before yeah. as opposed to just being told to do specific things and sticking to that task. Okay, it's interesting. So it seems like um, there's sort of developing perception in a way almost. It's very, yeah. Well, the way it's been described is... Um, perception and cognition yeah so perception being it can now recognize and map sounds and therefore language mm-hmm. um, hence google translate yeah and it can also recognize faces with a much higher degree of accuracy in images in general yeah so the error rate of recognition has come down to below the human error rate in visual recognition so people may, when you ask someone after they've seen something to describe it, they don't always get it right. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, you're not talking about perfection in terms of what good looks like here. What you're talking about is something that's better than what a human could do. And this is the other element of what we're talking about. Yeah. When you're setting up your task, the machine learning, um, they're very good learners. Mm-hmm. And so it means that they can, they can reach a standard beyond what humans can reach in some of these tasks that they're performing. So we've already, and that's partly the the cognition element. So we've already had computers beat the best players of complex games. Uh, And we now have the ability to perform tasks to a much higher level in a more consistent way. So those things um, have broadened the range of what's possible. Okay. So that's where it gets slightly unnerving when they can do things better than us, isn't it? Um, okay, l- let's start talking about you know the implications for, of this in, in the investment world. Uh, first of all, let's kind of go back through history. I know you like to uh, look at history, and um, would you say there's parallels with other technological advances uh, that we've seen in sort of recent history, or maybe even further back? Um, yes, um, if you look back over the last 250 or so years all of the growth in the economy, productivity, our living standards have generally come from technological advances. And there's a few that stand out um, which are described as general purpose technologies. In other words, technologies that can be very widely used for a while okay. across the economy by different, different parties and aren't specific to a particular task or an industry. So some examples of that would be steam engines. Yeah electricity and the internal combustion engine so let's just explore that a bit more yeah so the internal combustion engine and in each one of these what 
happened was you had the original breakthrough. And then over time, you had the application of that, uh, of that technological. And it gives rise to further innovations that weren't previously considered at all. Mm-hmm. And it gives rise to, to other types of products and services. So you could say, for example, that the internal combustion engine ultimately led to the creation of the suburbs. It led to supermarkets. It led to personal delivery because it allowed people to suddenly live in a completely different way once you worked out sure. how to use that technology. And then you have even things like Uber, which is also applying techno- that form of technology, right. i.e. You know, how, how you can use that technology to get around mm-hmm. in a slightly different way. So those previous examples that I gave, electricity, the steam engine and the internal combustion engine, all led to things which at the time were not foreseen. Yes. And so what happened is that they um, had to be absorbed, if you like, into people's thinking. They had to become widely available. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, people could use their imagination um, to consider how to do things afresh. So here's just a trivial example of that. So cars were originally built upon the same way of thinking as horse-drawn carts. So you had this idea of stepping out of the horse-drawn cart, which was quite high because yeah. horses are tall, onto a step, onto the ground. And the first iteration of cars were quite similar. Yes. <laughs> you don't need to do that anymore because that's not uh, what's required. A car can be much lower. That's a trivial example, but what I'm saying is people's mindsets are shaped by what they previously experienced. Course, yeah. And so what you now have the opportunity to do is rethink things in ways that we can't foresee. Okay, you mentioned a few examples there. Um, is the internet perhaps the most recent example of this uh, kind of game changer? Um, it seems to tick all the boxes that you mentioned there, of like, you know, uh, generating new industries, new ideas, innovations, which um, people just couldn't anticipate. It certainly is uh, probably the most vivid, more recent example. Right. Uh, and, yeah, f- f- um, for those who were, who were around um, in, in 1999 or 1998 or the year 2000, um, it had taken really, I guess, something like 15 years um, for people to work out what they could do with the internet mm-hmm. and how to apply it commercially. And at that point, you started to have the products and services that were coming to light. Yeah. So it was possible then to, to be able to start transacting on a mobile phone, although it was many years before that became a widely available way in which to operate. Yeah. So uh, it can take a while, but you're right. That's a good example, and it's led to the reconfiguration of many businesses and industries as they yeah. worked out how to apply it. Yeah, okay. And... Um, what I derive from that is that you think uh, AI is going to be another one of these um, sort of game changers. We just don't know how it's going to manifest itself in the future and there's plenty of like, innovations that can happen as a result. Is that correct? You know, it, if, you, if you listen to the, to, to the leading lights in the field, they will tell you that it's very early days yeah. and that you can't forecast how this was, will evolve. Um, uh, and we're yet to really start to apply this across different industries 
at scale. So for that reason, it's very exciting. It also means that, I mean, at the same time, people are actually using it possibly without labeling it AI. So quite a few reports that you might read mm. are already using natural language learning whereby computers are looking at data and then being able to create text. We do that for some of the client reporting of our own, for example. Yeah. Um, it's also done to a lesser degree on some forms of investment trading. Yeah. Um, so even in, uh, if you're using emails or if you're using text or any form of communication, there will be a provided a form of response. Mm -hmm. That is a form also of generative AI. So it's already there in terms of things that we do today, but they don't seem to be uh, uh, very exciting in terms of, 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 of kind of changing everything, but we are already down this journey of applying the technology and it's becoming more and more reliable. Uh, and so that's why when it comes to investment, um, we're also at a, both an exciting but also quite a dangerous point for investors. Okay. Um, could we delve into that then? What do you feel the dangers are at, at, at the moment for investors? You actually, I was actually just going to ask you, but because of what you were just saying, uh, you know, is, is perhaps the um, term artificial intelligence going to be misused? Are people going to you know, <laughs> label things artificial intelligence where they're not because it's just attracting so much attention at the moment? I think that's a great observation. And I think all previous examples of any form of enthusiasm that investors have, you tend to see that followed by uh, an adoption of labelling um, in all products and services to highlight whether they do or don't have that feature. Yeah. Uh, so in the investment world, that also means that money is raised for entities that are very clever at marketing. Mm -hmm. So to be able to distinguish whether that business genuinely is applying those technologies, what the effect of them are for you, and how things will apply in the future. So when people become very optimistic behaviorally, um, we struggle to be able to put into perspective um, the way our minds work. We tend to uh, form views quickly. The Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is a really great read for those who want to dig into this. Uh, okay. But what it tends to mean is our first response um, is, is to form an instinctive judgment, and that tends not to, to, that tends to make us more vulnerable to getting overly excited or, or indeed um, uh, overly pessimistic when things are bad, rather than digging deeply in terms of understanding uh, what the likelihood is of things happening and how much you would prepare to pay as an investor to own things. So to give you an example. If I go back to the 1999 example, uh, there were a lot of companies that had really poor business models but were able to raise capital on very attractive terms to them. They were trading at very high multiples. And this is within dot-com. That's right. Yeah. Um, but even established businesses um, were caught up in the same. So Cisco, Microsoft, Apple, all around there, they all fell around about 60%, 70 um, in that uh, uh, period between about February 2000 and, and when the market troughed, I think around about sort of 2003. Yeah. Um, they were, of course, great businesses, very successful, have gone on to, to you know, to, to progress and have been great investments. 
but it highlights the fact that when people get over enthusiastic about the prospects, um, what is a good business and a good industry might not be a very good investment if you've if you paid way too high a price to own that investment. Okay, so so what's the strategy then for investors in your view at this time? And you've drawn a, a parallel there with the dot com bubble, uh, which you saw at the turn of the century. Is this a, a similar sort of situation? I'd say there are similarities, but there are also big differences. So periods of innovation in general get investors excited, and when you have a new generation of investors who don't have much experience investing, they're even more likely to uh, overpay because they haven't had the perspective of earlier ups and downs. Mm -hmm. We've had some of that over-enthusiasm wash out last year as the price of some of those more speculative investments or companies that didn't really have a comparative advantage saw their share prices fall 80 90%. Um, we've also seen the same thing in Bitcoin and crypto in general, yeah. where people um, were able to invest in a more speculative way um, and have made huge gains and then seen huge falls. So I think we're, we're now at a slightly m more mature stage in the cycle where people have, haven't gone through that, um, are, are at least aware of that, but you still are at a point in time with the enthusiasm, which is lots of startups. There are big established players who are dominant players, without a doubt, and we've seen that in the way the markets performed this year. The big tech companies have rebounded all sort of 40, 50% yeah. plus. Um, and some of those, you know, had fallen quite heavily previously and on our own research looked pretty good value back in about September last year. Meta yeah. would be an example of that. Yeah. Um, however, you know, we don't really know exactly how the future will play out. We've got our own way of identifying how long companies can retain a comparative advantage. We use the term moat, which is this term that uh, was made popular by Warren Buffett, establishing ways to block competitors, much like a castle has a moat oh. to stop people entering the castle. So this is you protecting your comparative advantage and there's different facets of it. And some of these large tech companies have definitely established uh, moats uh, that are being reinforced by, by, by the way in which they're using technology or being at the forefront of it. So we think that they're certainly um, uh, not the same as many of the instances in the dot-com where there were highly speculative companies with poor business models that weren't dominant franchises. Here you have very dominant franchises. But they have become extremely large parts of the market mm -hmm. and they have become very highly valued, which means that investors are betting that they will be the primary beneficiaries of this, whereas actually what we're going to be going through is a significant period of change. It's quite possible these companies could continue to be very successful, um, but in periods of change when you don't know exactly how things will shake out and who the winners will be, um, you need to be very thoughtful about paying a very high price to own them. Okay, interesting. Just on your point about the larger companies, the big dominant companies, I mean, there's a chance that could work against them to a certain extent with antitrust and that sort of thing. Well, what's also interesting is that compared to maybe five or ten years ago, governments um, have taken steps um, to recognise, uh, identify and attempt to limit where they see excessive market powers. The European Union has probably led the field in that mm -hmm. and you've seen fines 
that have been applied to big tech companies on account of what is perceived to be an abuse of monopoly powers. Uh, so there is greater action being taken than before. It's also true to say that these are such dominant global franchises that unless all governments are unified in their response, and in particular the US government, then there's uh, a limit to how much governments can do to respond mm -hmm. to those businesses. Uh, and we're not seeing that globally unified approach. Um, so it's, it's, it's not certain that the government uh, actions will materially affect these franchises. Um, it really has to come from the US for that to be a material change. And if you look at geopolitics and the way things have developed and the relationships between China and the US, then there is a sense in which you want to support your local champions who are the ones who are pushing at the boundaries of development of this area. Mm. Uh, so that is likely to, to mean that you know, governments are possibly less uh, or more reluctant to want to really rein those companies in when it comes to uh, anything that could be perceived to be slowing them down. Okay, sure. Okay, um, getting fast towards the time limit of the podcast. Um, so we've covered a lot of ground so far. I, I, just one last question I want to ask you, and that's um, what this might mean for the asset management industry itself. Um, if we've got um, artificial intelligence is capable of doing repetitive tasks, we're capable of doing admin tasks, it's becoming better at perception and cognition. I mean, could we have robots doing your kind of work in five, ten years' time? I think it's, it's already been happening. So, like any other industry, the way in which this shakes out is that you look at all the processes and tasks that you perform in your industry. So let's say if I'm thinking about an asset management firm, uh, there's both the sales, the product creation, there's the investment element to it, which is the decision-making, and then the, the um, application of that investment decision-making in terms of implementing transactions. So you've already had uh, effectively through systematic trading and more automated trading, an element of applying artificial intelligence to thinking about how to implement transactions mm -hmm. in the most cost-effective way, but it doesn't move the price. It doesn't cause adverse liquidity uh, conditions for you. Um, and there are some much more specialized strategies that have been doing that forever. Um, but more generally, that, that seeped into the thinking, the analytical tools to uh, understand the environment, to project, um, what could happen to think uh, more uh, comprehensively about range of scenarios and how to consider what to do. So those things are, will already apply and humans uh, are prone to some pretty uh, adverse behavioral biases that aren't the case when you're using technology. So I would expect it to be a lot more um, application of technology, mm -hmm. but it's also the case that in periods of change where you've got new things happening uh, but there are elements that are, that are difficult to fully uh, include. And artificial intelligence is not a generalised form of intelligence that applies across a wide range of domains. And that is what makes it different from humans at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's still more specialised. So I don't think we're ever going to get to that stage of computers running in isolation uh, investment strategies. But it's like any tool. You'd want to use the most effective tools that you could mm -hmm. to improve your, invest, your own investment process. And, and so, like others, that's exactly what we're doing. And, and we have even things like our own chatbot that we use, which we call Mo. So it's natural for all organizations to want to make the most of technology, but it won't replace humans.
Okay, interesting. So a future ally. Exactly. Mike Coop, thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs>